yes, Cleveland is of all the best. Democrats, good Democrats, he'll win the East, he'll win the West. Democrats, good Democrats, no treason stains fair Cleveland skirt, no rings have soiled his robes with dirt, they'll wave no more the bloody shirt. Democrats, good Democrats. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 22. Grover Cleveland, Part 1, Uncle Cleve. From 1861 to 1909, a period of 48 years, Americans almost exclusively elected Republican presidents, a stretch of dominance we haven't come close to seeing since. But in that streak of GOP rule, there was one exception, one fly in the ointment, Grover Cleveland of New York, the Democrat so nice, they elected him twice. But not back-to-back. That's right, Grover Cleveland is the only non-consecutive two-term president in our nation's history, which gives us a fascinating dynamic, because after being voted out of office in 1888, Cleveland will face the man who beat him in a rematch in 1892 one of the few rematches in American presidential history. In this episode, Grover Cleveland Part 1, we'll look at how Grover went from private lawyer to Buffalo mayor, New York governor, and president in less than four years, as meteoric a rise as you will see anywhere. Then, After talking to a historian about Cleveland's first term, I'm going to take a break from his story for some episodes on Benjamin Harrison, the man who defeats him, before coming back for Grover Cleveland Part 2, where we'll look at his 1892 redemption campaign, second term, and end of life. But that's still a few episodes away, so for now, get ready for one of the most scandalous elections of the Gilded Age, an election that will have Republicans yelling, Ma, ma, where's my pa? And Democrats answering, gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. Stephen Grover Cleveland was born March 18, 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey. But he dropped his first name Stephen after childhood and went by Grover the rest of his life. Now, if you're like me, one of the first questions that comes to mind about Grover Cleveland, and it almost seems too silly to ask, is whether he has any relation to the city of Cleveland. And I was surprised to find the answer is yes. The Cleveland name had been in North America for centuries, and some earlier relatives of Grover's did indeed found the city of Cleveland, but funny story about that. Those Earlier Clevelands, both the family and the city, spelled their name C-L-E-A-V-E, as in to cleave something in half with a cleaver like a butcher would. But that all changed around 1832, when a local Cleveland newspaper dropped the A because it was, quote, superfluous and taking up too much room in the newspaper's masthead. At some point after that, the Cleveland family also dropped the A from the spelling of its name. Maybe they felt it was superfluous too. Anyway, the Clevelands. Cleveland. They are related. How about that? Young Grover had a pretty typical childhood until, in 1853, 
his father passed away, leaving his family too impoverished to send young Grover to college. Grover tried his hands at a few different professions to help pay the bills and eventually found a family friend who was willing to lend him $25 to travel west to Cleveland, you guessed it, which had dropped the A by now because he wanted to go study law there. But Grover never reached the city. When passing through Buffalo, New York on his way out west, a well-connected uncle said, hey, no need to go to Cleveland, young man. My friends have a local law firm, and they'd be happy to take you on. The next thing you knew, Cleveland was working at the former law firm of the former president, Millard Fillmore. Cleveland, at this point, becomes a great example of, if you want to be successful, sometimes it helps just to get lucky. His uncle opened all the right doors in Buffalo for him to embark on a successful law and legal career. We all wish we had a benevolent uncle like Grover did. Grover's law career was going great, right up until 1861, when the Civil War broke out, and he continued right on with his great law career. Uh, Grover got out of serving in the Civil War by doing something that was totally legal back then. He paid someone else to fight in his place. Yeah, back during the Civil War, you could exempt yourself from being drafted by paying someone else to go instead and volunteer as tribute. A policy that won't exist in any later wars because, well, you know, it, it just doesn't look good, does it? In Grover's case, he found a 32-year-old Polish immigrant to take his place for $150. And uh, in case you're curious, good news, the Polish immigrant does survive the war. So no need to have uh, a death on your conscience for Grover right there. Well, so after that, because Grover was back home in Buffalo instead of down south fighting in the mud, he was able to start converting his law career into a political career, hopping back and forth between private practice and elected offices like assistant DA and sheriff until his career really took off when he ran for mayor of Buffalo in 1881. And I just want to pause for a moment and let this sink in. Cleveland is basically a small potato D-list local politician until he runs for mayor of Buffalo in 1881, and three years later, he's going to be elected president. How the heck does he pull that off? Basically, two things. First, he campaigned and delivered on an anti-corruption message, and second, he got really lucky to be a Democrat running for office in New York right as the conkling Republican machine was crashing and burning around him in glorious fashion. If you remember from our past few episodes on James Garfield and Chester Arthur, 1881 is the year that New York GOP boss Roscoe Conkling, Lord Roscoe, got in a tussle with President Garfield resigned from the Senate in an ill-advised power play where he expected the New York legislature to re-elect him by an overwhelming margin, only for the New York legislature to not re-elect him at all, and greatly damaging just the entire GOP apparatus in New York State in the process. 
So as that is happening to the Republican Party in New York, Grover runs for mayor with basically the same message as every first-time politician ever. The insiders are corrupt. I'm an outsider. Elect me, and I'll clean the whole mess up. But then, once Grover was elected, he did what many politicians failed to do. He delivered. Once in office, Grover put an end to a plot to siphon $100,000 off local taxpayers, and he instead implemented public works programs that, get this, were void of graft or kickbacks. I know, pretty wild idea. This whole mayor of Buffalo gig was going pretty well, but Grover didn't get to enjoy it long because less than a year after entering the mayor's office, he was nominated the Democratic candidate for governor of New York State. The 1882 New York governor's race was going to be all about rooting out corruption. The state had been run by Conkling's Republican machine for more than a decade, and everybody was just tired of the graft and, and theft that had been going on there. And that was now breaking down from that political feud between Garfield, Conkling, and Arthur. Uh, by 1882, Conkling had resigned, Garfield was dead, Conkling's former stooge Chester Arthur was president, and Conkling was mega pissed because Arthur had refused to name him Secretary of State. With the Conkling machine in turmoil, the 45-year-old Cleveland, running on his reform credentials as mayor of Buffalo, was able to surge way past the Republican nominee in the governor's race and win the governorship, roughly 535,000 votes, to 342,000. That is a killing in a state. This New York back then, that was considered a state that's up in the air. That's a state that every election like goes down to the wire. It's determined by like 1,000 votes or less, and he just won it by 200,000. As governor of New York, Grover again took on the corrupt party bosses. But let's take a moment to talk about those party bosses. Now, we've dunked a lot on party bosses like Roscoe Conkling, Tweed, and others before them. But party bosses weren't just powerful because they had a lot of money. They were powerful because they used some of that money to provide social services to constituents who had nowhere else to go. In an era with no social safety nets, the local party bosses were the ones who made sure you had a Thanksgiving turkey on your table. They helped you find work when you were down on your luck or get your kid out of jail when the going was tough. That self-serving generosity, as much as anything, was where their power came from. Which just goes to show, if the government doesn't offer people the services they need, someone else might fill that void, and that someone's motives might not exactly be in the public's interest. Because, sure, the party bosses used some of their wealth and influence to take care of their constituents, but mostly they swam in the money. It's good to be king. Anyway, Grover took on these party bosses because of the corrupt way they stole from the public treasury, but he offered nothing to replace the way they took care of those whose society was leaving behind. Which, well, we might get to that in a few episodes. As governor... Grover became known for three things, being anti-spending, anti-spoils, and pro-conservationist. On the latter two, 
he actually found an ally across the aisle in New York's newly elected GOP minority leader, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. That's right, Theodore is entering politics and he's writing the reform rocket too. Young Roosevelt is very much the junior and begrudging partner of Grover when they team up. I mean, he is in the opposition, after all. But Theodore did sponsor a state civil services reform bill that Cleveland signed. And when Cleveland beautified and protected the area around Niagara Falls, he certainly had young Roosevelt's approval. But Roosevelt's career still has a couple decades to go before he reaches the presidency. The Cleveland rocket ship is about to land in the White House after one quick pit stop for fuel at the 1884 Democratic Convention. Now, you might be thinking that a relative newcomer like Grover would be a dark horse candidate at best at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago that year, but you'd be wrong. Grover's reputation for good governance had preceded him, and he actually led from the first ballot, and it wasn't even close. Grover picked up 392 of the 547 votes he needed to win the nomination right out of the gate. His nearest rival had 170. The guy after that had 88, while the half dozen other candidates trailing beyond that. So it was looking good right out the start, but we've seen favorites lose before, so there was still plenty of opportunity for drama. And that drama did threaten to take shape that night. Representatives of just about every Democratic candidate not named Grover Cleveland met at a hotel when the convention adjourned for the evening after only two ballots had been taken, no winner named yet. This anyone-but-Cleveland crowd locked on a candidate to rally behind on day two, but Grover's campaign had a spy in the room who reported everything back to Cleveland's managers. The following morning, Grover's supporters were out of bed and in the convention hall before the opposition, and they grabbed all the available space to maximize the pro-Grover clamor. With the raucous, pro-Cleveland crowd making the rafters shake, the anti-Grover dark horse never had a chance to make a move. The convention nominated Cleveland on the first ballot of the second day with 683 votes in his favor, far more than the 547 that were necessary. Just like that, Grover Cleveland was the 1884 Democratic presidential nominee. But now, he's got to win the general election. And after a few years of easy climbing, this race is going to be a doozy because he's going to face someone we've been hearing about since Hayes was running for office way back in episode 19. That's right, entering from stage left, the plumed knight, the magnetic man himself, James G. Blaine, a former Secretary of State, a former Speaker of the House, and a former Senator from the state of Maine. Oh, and uh, don't forget, the Democrats have not won the White House since James Buchanan in 1856. 28 years earlier, so this was not going to be an easy race for Grover Cleveland. But about that Blaine fella, in my past few episodes, when I've talked about the roaring feud between Blaine's half of the Republican Party, the half-breeds, and Roscoe Conkling's half of the Republican Party, the stalwarts, 
I've made a big deal about how Conkling's half was all about protecting the spoils system and corrupt as hell, and that might have given you the impression that Blaine's faction was the non-corrupt branch of the Republican Party. Well, Blaine was actually corrupt as hell too, just in a different way. While Conkling skimmed public dollars off the New York Customs House to fuel his political ambitions and, you know, pay the people that he needed to pay to support him, Blaine straight up pocketed bribes from companies to pass legislation they wanted. That's right! There are very few political good guys in the Gilded Age. And we're about to hear all about it, because policy-wise, there wasn't much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans in 1884. Both wanted limits on Chinese migration. Both wanted some labor reform. This election was more of a pick-your-scandal election. In one corner, we had James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine, who had been caught red-handed taking bribes from a railroad company 20 years earlier. And now, just in time for the election... A new incriminating letter had emerged where he detailed the plot to an accomplice and signed off, quote, burn this letter, which is not typically written on documents you want going public during election years. In the other corner, we had former Buffalo sheriff, mayor, and current governor of New York, Grover Cleveland, who's about to become a father in the most scandalous way possible. That's right. On June 21st, 1884, two weeks after Cleveland's nomination at the Democratic National Convention, the Buffalo Evening Telegraph printed the following headline, quote, A terrible tale, a dark chapter in a public man's history, the pitiful story of Maria Halpin and Governor Cleveland's son. That's right. It's sex scandal time. There are two versions of the story of Grover Cleveland and Maria Halpin. First, I'll tell you Maria's version. Then, I'll tell you Grover's version. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice these are entirely two different stories. According to Maria Halpin, Grover Cleveland had been aggressively trying to ask her out for some time when she finally agreed to see him and let him walk her home one night. But when he got her home, he entered her apartment and raped her. And then, a short time later, Maria discovered she was pregnant. Feeling overwhelmed and distraught, Maria Halpin reached out to Grover, who promised to marry her if she would abandon the child to an orphanage. And she said okay. But then, once Maria got rid of the baby, instead of marrying her, Grover got her committed to an insane asylum to make the problem go away. The doctors soon decided this woman's not insane, she's just abused, and let her go. Maria then kidnapped her baby back from the orphanage, but was forced to return the child. She then left Buffalo to get a fresh start somewhere else. Whoa. So that's Maria's version of the story. Here's Grover's. According to Grover Cleveland, yes, he had sex with Maria Halpin. But it was consensual, as was her sex with numerous other wealthy men in Buffalo. That's right. According to Grover, 
Maria was just sleeping with everyone. And when Maria got pregnant, Grover was the only unmarried man of the bunch who was sleeping with her, so he agreed to give the child his last name, basically to cover for all the other guys who had been cheating on their wives with Maria. But that's not all. Grover then accused Halpin of being a crazy drunk who had threatened to kill the child. So he had generously placed the baby in an orphanage for its own safety and Halpin in an asylum where she could get treatment for her alcoholism. These dueling stories, as you can imagine, caused quite the sensation. The first story the public heard, broken over that summer in 1884, was actually a slightly different third version of the events that mostly resembled Maria's, but was told by a Buffalo reverend who did not mention the alleged rape. As the scandal dominated the news, Republicans began taunting Democrats with the cry, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? to bring attention to the story of the abandoned child. When Grover was asked by his campaign how it should respond to the story, he allegedly said, quote, Above all, tell the truth. And then he told his version of the story. But I'll be honest, this above all, tell the truth line feels a bit more like good PR than actually telling the truth. It's politics 201. When you are caught in a scandal, admit to a little bit of it, and then accuse the rest of being an exaggeration. That tactic seemed to be working, as Grover's version of events gained traction. But then, a massive October surprise dropped when a Republican newspaper found Maria Halpin and published her version of the story, rape allegation and all, weeks before Election Day. In the end, the election came down to the electoral votes of New York State, where Grover again benefited from the turmoil within the New York Republican Party. One-time party kingpin Roscoe Conkling, Lord Roscoe, had considered himself Blaine's biggest rival for national control of the GOP for most of the previous 20 years. Now that Blaine finally had the Republican Party's presidential nomination, he asked Conkling to help him canvass New York, a state that was going to be critical to winning the election, only for Conkling to reply, quote, I do not engage in criminal practice. So, no. Conkling would not help Blaine win the presidency. And then Blaine scored a massive own goal with a self-destructive October surprise of his own. On October 29th, 1884, a week before the election, he was speaking to a dinner featuring New York's wealthiest citizens. When? Right before it was his turn to speak, a Presbyterian minister lambasted the Democratic Party as the party of, quote, Rome, Romanism, and rebellion. Digs at Irish Catholics and former Confederates. After the minister said this, Blaine took the stage, and he did nothing to dispute the minister's claims, which Democratic rivals interpreted as Blaine endorsing them. Grover's campaign made great hay of this, saying Blaine's silence proved he was bigoted against Irish Catholics who, you guessed it, big voting bloc in New York. With these two massive strikes against Blaine, the lack of support from Conkling, and 
offending the state's Irish community, Governor Grover Cleveland was just able to eke out a victory in his own backyard. 563,000 votes for Grover to 562,000 votes for Blaine in New York. So went New York, so went the nation. New York's 36 electoral votes proved decisive in Cleveland's 219 to 182 electoral college victory. Nationally, Cleveland had narrowly won the popular vote as well, 4.91 million to 4.86 million, with a big caveat of, remember, down in the South, they are suppressing the black Republican vote like you would not imagine. But ultimately, the 1884 presidential election was determined by just over 1,000 New York voters. Remember all those Republicans taunting him, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? The Democrats now had their answer. Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. And so, on March 4th, 1885, 48-year-old Grover Cleveland's meteoric rise from Buffalo mayor to 22nd president of the United States was complete in just three short years. In 1880, he'd been a private lawyer. Four years later, he was president-elect. Let's take a look at the country and the world he inherited when he was sworn in. Internationally, Europe was turning into an imperialism addict once again, with the British conquering Egypt in 1882 and the French conquering Indochina in 1883 and 4. So, if you know anything about how colonialism tends to go for the colonized, you know this was not a good time. On the less of a bummer front, the novel Treasure Island, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, published in 1883. I loved that book when I was a kid. Domestically, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show started touring in 1883. Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, published in 1884, and also in 1884, a man named L.A. Thompson opened the country's first roller coaster at Coney Island, New York City. It was called Switchback Railway. It traveled six miles per hour, and it cost a nickel to ride. Switchback Railway doesn't exist today, but its younger Coney Island cousin, the Cyclone, which opened in 1927, still does. And fun personal story, I'm the third generation of my family to have ridden the Cyclone, which I just think is so cool. Anyway, after a roller coaster of an election, haha, <laughs> let me just pat myself on the back a moment for that transition, Grover was ready to get down to business of being president. Grover's first term was known for two things, his love for vetoes and his love for Francis Folsom. Let's start with the vetoes. Both as mayor and governor, Grover had built a reputation on aggressively vetoing just about anything that spent money. And that continued into his presidency. Pensions for war veterans? Vetoed. Aid for farmers impacted by drought? Vetoed. Internal constructions projects? Vetoed. In the words of Grover, quote, Though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Which is a heck of a bumper sticker. Hang with me for a moment for some numbers. 
the 21 presidents before Grover Cleveland issued 116 vetoes over the previous 96 years. So 21 presidents, 116 vetoes, 96 years. Grover Cleveland issued 304 vetoes in the four years of his first term alone. That's right. In four years, Grover issued nearly three times as many vetoes as all previous presidents combined in 96 years. The only president who will issue more vetoes than Grover in the history of the United States is Franklin Roosevelt, who will issue 372 over the course of 12 years. So, yeah, the guy loved his vetoes. But let's get to the second love of his presidency, the love that prompted me to nickname him Uncle Cleve. It's going to get weird. On June 2nd, 1886, 49-year-old President Grover Cleveland married 21-year-old Frances Folsom, a woman he had known for 21 years. I'll let you do the math on that for a second. Yeah, there's more layers of weird to this than you even know. So, Francis's father was a man named Oscar Folsom. Oscar Folsom had once been Grover's best friend and law partner. He was also allegedly one of the other men sleeping with Maria Halpin in Buffalo. That's right, we're back to Maria Halpin and the sex scandal. Remember the baby she had? The one Grover claimed wasn't his, he was just pretending it was his. Well, Maria may have made the baby's last name Cleveland, but she made the baby's first and middle names Oscar Folsom. Ah! This has led to more than a few historians speculating that baby Oscar Folsom Cleveland's true father may have been Oscar Folsom and not Grover Cleveland. So, Francis's father, Oscar Folsom, had also been sleeping with Maria Halpin, and either Oscar Folsom or Grover Cleveland was the father of baby Oscar Folsom Cleveland. That is strange, but it's also merely a side note from the world of weird that was Creepy Cleve's marriage to Francis. You see, Grover wasn't just a friend of Francis's father, he also became her legal guardian when Oscar Folsom died in a carriage accident when Francis was 10. Grover, he bought her her first crib. He had known her since the day she was born, basically. She grew up calling him Uncle Cleve. Nobody knows when things turned romantic, but on June 2nd, 1886, Francis married Uncle Cleve and moved into the White House as First Lady. Together, they had five children. We've had some pretty tragic and weird relationships in this podcast, but this takes the wedding cake. And those were the top highlights of Grover's first term. In 1884, he faced Republican nominee Benjamin Harrison and lost. But I'll recount that election in Benjamin Harrison's episode. As Francis and Uncle Cleve, I'm sorry, uh, Grover Cleveland, left the White House, Francis turned to her favorite White House servant and in her best Terminator impression, said, I want you to take good care of all the furniture and ornaments in the house, for I want everything just as it is now when we come back again. We are coming back just four years from today. And she proved right. So, 
That wraps up part one of Grover Cleveland's story. Next up, I'll talk to a historian on Grover Cleveland's historic 1884 win. Uh, There's a lot more going on there than I had time to get to, including some more shenanigans with young Theodore Roosevelt. After that, I've decided that for the sake of narrative, I'll take a break from Uncle Cleve to tell the story of the man who beat him in the 1888 election, Benjamin Harrison. When we're done with Harrison and a couple more historian interviews, we'll come back to Grover to pick up where we left off his defeat and ejection from the White House. We'll follow him through his 1892 revenge campaign, his second term, and on to the end of his life. We'll also look at what we can learn from him and the top things worth remembering about him in that episode. But that does leave one last thing to do in this episode. Take a look around the world and the country to see how it changed during Cleveland's term. Internationally, there are three big events I want to mention. In 1885, German engineer Karl Friedrich Benz sold the first commercial automobile powered by an internal combustion engine. He patented it the following years, and holy smokes, guys, this moment is generally considered the invention of the modern car. So we are coming up on a revolutionary change in transit in the decades to come. In 1887, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published the first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet. Holmes is most famous for going toe-to-toe with Professor James Moriarty and Irene Adler, but he did tangle with the Ku Klux Klan in one of his stories, The Five Orange Pips. I actually read the story as a child, and it was the first time I had ever heard of the Klan, and I think we can all agree, fuck those guys. But I promised you three international events. It's time for the third. In 1888, the 28-year-old German prince Frederick William Victor Albert succeeded his father to become Wilhelm II, Emperor of Germany. This young monarch is the same German emperor who will play a central role in bringing about World War I 26 years later. So we are increasingly putting the pieces in place for that terrible conflict. Domestically, I again have three major events to share. In 1886, John Pemberton introduced a new beverage to the world, Coca-Cola. That's right, polar bears have been drinking the stuff ever since. Also in 1886, the Statue of Liberty opened in New York City. Originally proposed in 1865, it had taken more than 20 years to build the Statue of Liberty in Paris, take it apart, ship it to New York, and reassemble it in the harbor. I love the Statue of Liberty. And that part I said about it being built in Paris, there's some pictures out there that you can find of the Statue of Liberty in Paris. Go look it up. It's wild. The final significant American event I'll mention came in 1887, when the United States was granted the rights to establish a naval base at Pearl Harbor on the independent island nation of Hawaii. The fate of Pearl Harbor is another story for another time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about the show, then subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I love those sweet, sweet five-star reviews. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. 
If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was Grover Cleveland by Henry F. Graff. In our next episode, I'll talk to historian Ted Cohn about what are mugwumps and how did they help Cleveland win his first election to the White House. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>